the obvious background of this text and sermon is the passing of my mother-in-law while I was in uh, Korea. The particular time I remember I was staying overnight away from my parents' house. I was due to preach at an institution and I've heard from my wife that she passed. And from time to time, it is my testimony when such things happen, a passage comes to my mind. God reminds me of certain passages. And this was the passage that came to my mind. Obviously, I was thinking about something else to preach this Sunday, today. But this passage came to my mind, and, and I will explain the first verse and it will make better sense as we listen to this text. For we know that if the earthly tent, and he's talking about our body, which is our house is torn down, that is when we die, we have a building from God and that building refers to our resurrection body that we will receive. So that's the, that's the confusing part in the first verse. But once you figure that out, everything else is, it makes sense. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house, in this body, we groan. Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. That is, to receive the resurrection body. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, in this body, we groan. Being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. Who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer, rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Amen. It's just not my wife or my family. But as we have sung in the beginning of our worship, it is sad, but it is reality that the deathbed is approaching for all of us, all of you. That's the sobering fact. 
Even as I was away, I've heard the news, I've seen on the phone what had happened in the States. And even yesterday, I've heard that some of our church members' extended family got hurt with all kinds of things that are happening in this world. If you could be honest that, that, that with the news that we see, oftentimes we are scared. Because we don't know. We don't know when um, that kind of things would happen to us. When we will die. Second Corinthians is many things. But in Second Corinthians, Apostle Paul is talking about the superiority of the new covenant ministry. And one of the topics that he deals with in chapter 5 is how we should live our lives thinking about death. It is one of the many things that he talks about. He's talking about in the second Corinthians. But here he talks about what should we expect about our death and how should we then live our lives for the remainder of our days on earth. So I'll talk about a few things. He begins the first verse by saying, For we know that if we die, there will be a resurrection body prepared by God from heaven that we'll receive. But I like that word, how he says we know with conviction. With assurance. So many times, even Christians, we live our lives with, ah, without such conviction. So we say, I hope so. I hope we go to heaven. I hope when we die, Christ will receive us. But here we learn that that's not how we should live. None of us would begin our Christian life as like Paul, with full conviction. But God is inviting us today. We all should have such assurance about our future. As Paul speaks with such boldness, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, probably God is saying to all of us, you know what, all of you should be able to say with Apostle Paul that we know, we know that this is the case. This is the reality. So that's the first point I want you to think about. We need to grow into that full assurance and confidence in God's word and the reality that is described in this, in this passage. Know what is the second question. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is a house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
This was something that Paul had in his mind as he lived his life. As he was ministering to countless Christians and churches, he would think about many things, correct? He would think about church planting, he would talk about, he'd think about evangelism, encouragement, rebuking someone maybe. But he had this in his mind that if death comes, if the earthly tent, which is a house, is torn down, by using the term torn down, Paul is envisioning his life ending in a violent death. It's not a usual term. If the earthly tent, my body, is torn down, if I had to die with this persecution, if I die a death of martyrdom, what, what should he think about? Is he fearing for that kind of death? Obviously not. Because he says, if this house is torn down, we have a building from God. And all of us, we are wondering, what does that mean? Why does this matter? This tent, house, all of that. Right, as I have said, what he is saying in verse 1 is this. If we die in our mortal body, we have a resurrection body that is prepared for us in heaven by God. So he is saying, do not worry because you will be clothed from above by God's own hands with the resurrection body. Why is this important for Paul? And why is he telling Corinthians to know about this? Pagan view of death is, it means going to a good place or at peace, disappearing, something like that. But here, we learn that Christian hope is uniquely bodily. Body is not less than the spirit. Disembodied spirit is not our ultimate hope. Only in the intermediate state, once we die, our spirit goes immediately into the presence of God and we behold Him in that blessing. But we await for the resurrection of our bodies. So God creates new man by His Spirit at the time of your conversion. Renewed, restored by the Holy Spirit through the gospel of His Son. Right? So we have this renewed man that is invisible. But that reality that we have now cannot be divorced from the physicality of Christian hope in the resurrection of the body. Just as Christ ascended into heaven with his body, 
we shall enjoy the presence of God for eternity with both body and soul united together. There is that continuity between present life and the resurrection life for us. That means our personality will remain the same. Right. So we do not change into something else. But we await for the resurrection body. Also this uh, language of tent and the building, uh, it reminds us of the Old Testament language. How the tent was used in the time of um, Exodus. But in due time, more permanent building was erected, temple of God. Likewise, our earthly pilgrimage will end with destruction of our body. But we will have a permanent building that is our resurrection body or resurrected body. And that is important because that body will signify a place of communion with God. So it is not simply that we will have some kind of glorious body. But when our soul is united with that resurrection body, which is our dwelling place, a permanent dwelling place, but also it signifies with that body, we will have a place of communion with God forever. That's how God created us. So it is a good news what Paul is talking about. That how, how we have a building from God not made with hands. And we have a building from God also speaks to us the gospel hope. That it does not depend on us. We take good works seriously. But at the end of the day, it is Christ, it is God who gives us our building. It is God. It is a building from God. So I want you to know this. I want you to grow into we know with full conviction, we could say, we should say. But also what he is talking about in verse 1, that if we die, our hope is that not simply we go to heaven or I'll be with Christ. Well, that is true. But Paul gives us the revelation from God that we will also have a house, permanent building made by God and he will give that to us. That's what we expect. That's what we should expect. When we die, we will have a resurrection body that God will give to us at the time of Christ's second coming. So that's verse 1. That is, that is a Christian hope. It's not reincarnation. It's not being born into some kind of Hindu 
view, depending on what you have done, you are born into a rat. If you messed up in this life, or born into something else, reincarnation forever. But that verse 1 gives us a unique, true Christian hope. One of my friends was a TV personality, very famous both in Korea and in Japan. But he committed suicide. So about a few years ago, when I was visiting my friend, he looked him up, and we found out that he was, bur- he was buried in a Buddhist temple. I would not usually go to Buddhist temple. I don't go to those places. But I said, okay, he was my best friend in, in, in my youth. So we went to that Buddhist temple, and, and they had this little tiny name tag. And his fans from a couple of countries, they came and they put all kinds of little things in front of his name. But that was not what drew my attention. I looked around in that temple, and there were names and faces of people who died, uh, mostly black pictures. I don't know what the regulations were, but it was all black faces, black, black and white photos of someone who died. And, and their descendants, they put you know, all flowers and all kinds of things attached to that. One thing I've noticed from those pictures I've looked around as I was just looking around was how gloomy uh, they looked. Think about our own death. With what expectation should we go to our God? Not with that kind of gloomy faces that I've seen in that Buddhist temple. And even my friend who was gone, people say good things, but we know the truth. But with that expectation, with that expectation of receiving resurrection body from God, a permanent dwelling place where we could have communion with God forever and ever and ever. Apostle Paul talks about the reality. If you would look at verse 2 and 3, he uses the term twice, groan. Verse 2, for indeed in this house is supplied. For in this house, in this body, we what? What do we do? We groan. Verse 4, for indeed while we are in this tent, we groan. 
He does not say, you know, you go to heaven, so be happy. Don't worry. Start laughing. Have fun. He doesn't say. It is true in verse 1, we have this resurrection body coming from above, not made with hands, but by God from all eternity. It's a good thing. But he gives us the realistic picture that indeed in this house, that means as long as you remain in this body, you groan. Isn't, isn't that accurate description? We groan. All of us, we groan. The main purpose for my trip back to Korea was to see my grandmother. And she raised me while I was a young boy. She's 94, you know, and it was by God's providence about a week before I arrived, the nursing home, by law, was allowed to have guests. So I was very thankful that it was opened, that whole process. And, and it was set to expire on that first Sunday that I was there, but somehow, again, by God's providence, it was extended. So I had few opportunities to, to touch my grandmother's hand. 94. How long does she have? Not long. So, she's a Christian, but while I was holding her hand, I was probably thinking, I was thinking probably next time, if there's next time, it's not going to be warm hand next time that I touch her hand. And I was thinking about many of you who have lost your parents. And how I was even thinking about even after losing parents, God gave you grace not only to remain in the household of God, in the church, but still faithfully serving and worshiping our God. That is a a special grace for you. And hearing about my mother-in-law and I'm looking at the picture, I mean, I just cannot believe. Um, so we groan. That is, that is groaning. But I would say two things about this groaning. First is this. This language of groaning in Paul, it goes back to the Old Testament. I'll give you a couple of passages. Psalm 12, 5, Psalm 38, verse 9. A couple of passages. And let me read those to you. Psalm 12, verse 5. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will rise says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Psalm 38 verse 9, Lord, all my desire is before you 
And my sighing, sighing basically groaning, my sighing is not hidden from you. What that really means is this. In the context, it has affliction. Affliction in life causes psalmist or Paul to groan. But that groaning, sighing without speech, without words, groaning has longing built into it. And that longing is, if I could put it this way, is or should be your prayer. So for us, for believers, the groaning, yes, we groan in this body from physical pain, emotional pain, and all kinds of problems in this fallen world, we groan. We cannot describe it. We cannot express it. But if we want to be true to that groaning as Christians, that groaning should translate into prayer with longing for our resurrection life. It's not for the groaning for the groaning's sake but groaning with with desire or longing for God delivering us from this groaning. So it is true that we should have that resurrection body set in our hearts and minds, but we groan, yes, we groan, we have to, I mean, that's the way it is, subjected to that curse, But groaning, I pray that you will make that into prayer. Longing for God, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Groaning into prayer. And second thing, as I was sitting in that room, next day as I had to, I had to preach somewhere else, I was thinking about this groaning. Second Corinthians 5, just thinking about just putting on some outlines. And what, what else comes to your mind? We know from, the, from another passage there is a someone else who is groaning. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. Romans 8. We have looked at passage Romans 8. Some time ago, but there are three entities that groan. It is the entire creation that groan, groans. It is us, we groan, but also it is the Holy Spirit who groans. So let me read that few verses for us. Romans eight twenty three. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even though we have the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection life, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, as I have explained from Psalms. Groaning, affliction, groaning, and longing. It is, it is one language. It is a unit. So we groan within ourselves, but that groaning translates into waiting eagerly for the adoption 
as sons, redemption of our body. Romans 8, 26 to 27 says, In the same way the Spirit, that is Holy Spirit, also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings to deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, today's passage, verse 2, we groan in our body. All of the pains that we experience in this life, but we as Christians, we should have eager expectation built into that groaning. Make it into prayer. But oftentimes, groaning, what can you say? Nothing. Nothing comes to your mind. We just groan with pain. But the good news is that the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. And He is our intercessor. And more importantly, Holy Spirit is the interpreter of your groaning. He takes your groaning inexpressible in words, but with perfect interpretation and intercession, He brings your groaning aligned perfectly to the will of God. And your groaning is heard clearly by the mind of God as the Holy Spirit comes alongside with you with his own groaning. He doesn't have to. But because because he cares for you, he groans with you. How comforting that is. You don't have to articulate. You just, in pain, groan. But at that time, you will do well to remember. There is not a saint but the third person of the Godhead who who intercedes with his own groaning. Only after that, in verse 6, he says, Therefore, being always of good courage. You see? He starts with that vision of God. That if we die, there is a body waiting for us. And in that body, united with my soul, we will enjoy the presence of God forever. But we groan. I like that. That's realistic. We groan. We groan. We groan. We pray. We know Holy Spirit is there to help us. Only then, and I don't know how long it is it's going to take for us, but groaning is not the final stage. It should not characterize us, though we remain in our groaning for some time. It takes time, correct? Our final stage in this life is not 
groaning, but being always of good courage. Once again, verse 8, it says, We are of good courage. Why and how? Verse 7 is key. Because we walk by faith, not by sight. We do not remain in affliction and groaning. Yes, we pray in groaning. But that's not the final say. That's not the final state. The mode in which we live our lives as Christians. By the grace of God, God, we come out of that groaning. And he says, verse 6, being always of good courage. We should be there. It's not always gloomy faces that we need to show ourselves how serious we are as Christians. But as God supplies you with his grace, pulls you up, we should pray that, God, I want to come to this stage being always of good courage. That word means being cheerful, being confident, or being courageous. When? How long? Always. At all times, we are of good courage. We cannot say to someone who's suffering, who's crying, because you are going to heaven, you should be happy. That's ridiculous. That's shallow. You weep with those who weep. You pray to God to deliver us from evil. And when time passes and, and you are being healed, we should say, you know, I cannot remain in this grief forever. But as Christians, we should say, we are of good courage, always. Lord, have mercy on me. Final thing is this. Look at verse 9 and 10. Imagine you want to console someone who's crying, who's in pain. Wouldn't you stop at verse 8? Wouldn't I stop at verse 7? But verse 9 and 10, just, they just refuse to be treated in a separate entity. All that the Spirit has said through Paul, verse 9 and 10, they want to tag along. Therefore, you see verse 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. It is not simply I want to be happy, of good courage, but I'm going to go one step farther and I want to please God. I want to do all things for the glory of God. Look at verse 10. Not only that, for, once again connected, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10 
is a very significant ending for our discussion today. I thought about cutting verse nine and ten because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with my agenda of comforting someone. Imagine saying verse nine and ten to someone who is at funeral. You don't want to say verse nine and ten. You just simply end with "God is with you." Expect resurrection body. God will clothe us with at the time of second coming of Christ. It's not simply be of good courage. Verse nine, but it is our ambition to please Him. Don't simply sit there. When time comes, you need to get up, and you need to live your life with an ambition to please Him. Verse ten gives us judgment seat of Christ. Why? Why does he talk about? If it was his sole aim to comfort Christians, Corinthians, if you lost someone, I want you to think about these things. But verse ten gives us the whole picture. I thought about verse ten. I didn't spend enough time to think about verse ten. Why? Why would Spirit give this verse to that that that? Passage. My conclusion is this: Oftentimes, we want we want our pains to be removed from our Christian lives. We have so many issues, problems, so we come to God hoping that my problem A to be removed. So we pray to God for A, and if God removes A, you are happy. If He doesn't, then you 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 get angry. All the while, my eye view, my eyesight is focused on my problem A. But verse ten gives you the whole picture, the whole counsel of God. It is not simply my problem A. So Paul, in his mind, he always he has the entirety of the whole counsel of whole counsel of God all the time when he deals with problems. It is not simply your problem A, but from A to Z, the whole thing, the judgment seat of God, whatever you are suffering about, feeling the pain inside of you, bring verse ten. Judgment seat of Christ, it will give you a right perspective, the whole perspective. That's right. It is because there is that judgment seat of Christ, and each one may be dealt with by God according to what He has done in His body, whether good or bad. With that fear of the Lord, we persuade men, we minister. Not only we we think about my pains only, but you realize you wake up and you look around, and because there is that judgment seat of Christ, you start sharing the gospel. You get up and you move beyond, go beyond your own problems. 
What a glorious picture that we have. It's just the, the Word of God does not want to be reduced into some kind of pill that you swallow to have my pain removed. But starting from that we know if I die violently, if I die the martyrdom's death, I'm comforted by knowing that there is that building from God. We started from there, verse 1. We groan as long as we remain here. But we pray, knowing that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. So we do not remain in groaning mode, but we go into that good courage mode. But it's not simply feeling happy, uplifted, but we make it our ambition to please our God. So we get up and we minister, we proclaim, we share, we serve, we live our lives. But finally, the judgment seat of Christ. Paul sneaks in. That's the proper ending. It compels us to not to receive God's grace in vain. Not to remain in the state of groaning. But we pray, all of us, that we will make it our ambition to please the Lord and live the remainder of our lives. Only God knows the number of our days. But we live with the fear of the Lord to serve Him. Because all of us, all human beings, we will have to stand in front of that judgment seat of Christ. May we go to that judgment seat of Christ being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And there's nothing for you to fear. But if you're unclothed, that language is garden language. If you're unclothed, if you don't wear anything from Christ, then there will be second death, the judgment, the true judgment. So let us live our lives with all that vision that God has shown us in this passage. Let's pray.